go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your gift of worship, Lord, how it settles us, Lord, how it puts our mind in the right place, God. What a a beautiful way to start our morning, Lord, just focused on you, reminding ourselves of your faithfulness, Lord, reminding ourselves of your promises and your goodness. And so we thank you for that. Lord, would you go before us now? Bless your word, Lord. Uh, Give us understanding, God, and uh, just pray that our time would be um, edifying and fruitful and that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, 1 Peter chapter 5, last time we were together, we went through chapter 4, obviously. Peter reminded us there that we should no longer live the rest of our time here in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. And he said, we've spent enough time doing that. We've spent enough time living for ourselves, and now it's time to live for the Lord And he ended chapter 4 with an encouragement to all the believers who were suffering according to the will of God. He told them to commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator, not allowing the persecution they were going through or the suffering that they were going through to silence them or to stop them from sharing their faith or from making it known to others, which would be easy to do. When we're persecuted for our faith, that would be easy. It would be enough to silence us or to make us kind of hide out. But he was exhorting them, don't do that. Don't let that happen to you. Commit yourselves to the Lord and continue to exhibit your faith through doing good. And now in chapter 5, Peter is wrapping up this first letter. He has some closing remarks for these believers that he's writing to. And um, the, this last chapter that he's writing to, he has a word regarding the shepherd, the sheep, and the roaring lion. So that's the title of our message this morning. And first he addresses the shepherds. So let's look at um, chapter 5, verse 1. And it says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Well, Peter starts off by saying, I exhort you, I I'm a fellow elder, I'm a witness, and I'm a partaker. And personally, as I read through this chapter the first time, just to get a, you know, picture of what it was, you know, that Peter was saying, I, the Lord took me back and um, to another passage, and he reminded me of who this man was that was writing this letter. And it really blessed me. And I want to start off this morning by all of us looking there. So I want to, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. <clears throat> and I know our, our homework referenced this, but I really want to take a good look at it before we start. So Luke chapter 22, I'm going to start in verse 23, but at this point Jesus is with his disciples. They're partaking in the Last Supper together, and Jesus just told his disciples that somebody there was going to betray him. In verse 23, it says, Then they began to question among themselves which one it was who would do this thing. 
Now, there was also a dispute among them as to which one would be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, which is Peter, Indeed, Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to the death. And then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. So, Peter was a man who was pretty confident in himself. He was confident in his um, faithfulness to Jesus. He was ready to go to the death with him if necessary. And yet, just shortly after that, uh, we know from um, the end of that chapter in verse 60, it says that even as the words were coming out of Peter's mouth, the third time uh, denying Jesus that he knew him, the rooster crowed. Just as Jesus said that it would happen, and it tells us that um, when that happened, that the Lord turned and he looked at Peter, and Peter remembered what Jesus told him, that Jesus said this would happen. And it says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He was a broken man, but that's where he needed to be because of that sorrow and that godly repentance The Lord was able to take this man and restore him and use him just like the Lord said he would. He said, Peter, when you return to me, strengthen the brethren. And as I read this chapter, I thought, this is the fulfilling of that. He is now strengthening the brethren just as Jesus said that he would. So Peter now is writing to these fellow elders. He puts himself on the same level as the men that he's writing to. So he says, first of all, I'm a fellow elder. And an elder is the same as a bishop or a pastor. And as the churches began forming, they were based upon the structure that a Jewish synagogue would be based upon. There was a chief leader of the synagogue, and so in the Christian churches, there was a leader in the church, and this would be the elder or the pastor. And um, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that elders or pastors are men. So Peter would be writing to men here. And he begins this exhortation by putting himself on that same level, calling himself a fellow pastor. He says also he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and he was a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. And we don't know exactly what he might be referring to there. However, we do know that Peter was one of the disciples, the three that were invited to come up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and they saw for themselves the glory of Jesus with their own eyes. He saw, he was a partaker of that glory that will one day be revealed to all. And also, he was an eyewitness of the resurrected uh, God, Jesus Christ. He was a partaker of that glory. So, 
the exhortation that he has to these elders. He says, first of all, shepherd the flock which is among you. So to shepherd, it means to feed or to tend or to care for. Remember when Jesus did restore Peter on the shores of the Galilee, he told Peter, tend my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And so Peter received that instruction from the Lord Jesus, and now he's giving it back to these men. And the believers who were reading this, they needed that. He was writing to those who were being persecuted, those who were dispersed because of their faith in Jesus. There was an outbreak of persecution following the, the death of Stephen, the first martyr, and they were facing challenges away from home. They were away from everything that was familiar to them. They were probably questioning whether they had done the right thing, and they were suffering. And they needed someone, a real live person, to truly care for them, someone to feed them and to tend to them spiritually. And that's, and God's plan is for his shepherds to do that, that they would fulfill that role. Now, our homework took us to Ezekiel chapter 34, and I thought that was a great description of what a shepherd should be. It told us what God's heart is for his shepherds, how seriously the Lord takes that, <clears throat> and how he holds his shepherds accountable And we saw in Ezekiel that a good shepherd seeks out what was lost, brings back what was driven away, binds up the broken, and strengthens what is sick. And that's what these believers needed, and that's what we need, don't we? Don't we need uh, those men in our lives that God has placed over us who will tend to us spiritually? And thank God he's done that. Excuse me. So Peter begins by instructing them to shepherd the flock among you. Notice it's, it's your flock. You don't need to worry about somebody else's flock. Just shepherd the flock that God has entrusted to you. And then he says, serving as overseers. So that means to look diligently, to look over them with the purpose of leading them. Not by compulsion. So this shouldn't be a burden. This shouldn't be done unwillingly, but it should be done willingly. If uh, someone has a heart, or if someone is called to this, they'll have a heart for this. The Lord gives them that heart. He gives them the the burden for for the sheep, not for dishonest gain. So the motive shouldn't be anything other than pleasing the Lord, whether that's for financial reasons or for popularity or you want a platform to get your agenda across. It's not for those reasons, but eagerly, which means with a ready mind to do it. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you. Remember back when we started Luke chapter 22, Jesus said to the the disciples that the Gentiles exercise lordship. That's how the world leads, but not with you. You're called to serve with humility those that have been entrusted to you. They aren't your sheep. They belong to the great shepherd. They've been entrusted to you. They're in your care, but they're not yours. You're their servant. Finally, he tells them to lead by being examples to the flock. And that really is what leadership is. You're setting the example for someone else to follow. It's not about just telling somebody what to do. It has to be, you have to be willing to do that yourself and allow others to follow you. 
Um, I said earlier, the role of the pastor or the elder is specifically for a man. So as women here today, we can't really directly apply these verses to our lives. However, in a broader sense, um, there are applications that we can make. Some of you here in this room are called to leadership. I remember hearing uh, someone teaching years ago on leadership, and they said, if you want to know if you're called to leadership, look behind you and see if anybody's following. And I thought, well, that's a good test. So in your mind's eye this morning, look behind you. Who do you have behind you that's following your example? Who's looking to you? And all of us, in one way or another, are leading somebody, whether you have children or you have grandchildren or younger brothers and sisters or nephews and nieces or Sunday school kids or people in ministry that are with you. Who are you serving? Now, what is our attitude in serving those that the Lord has given us and put in our care? Are we leading out of a sense of duty or obligation Is it a burden to us? Or do we receive that as a joy? Are we leading in a prideful way or with selfish motives or hoping for some sort of recognition or um, a way to get our agenda across? Are we doing it for any other reason than to please the heart of Jesus? And are we acting as Lord over those that are entrusted to us? And I think that part can be really tricky when you are calls to leadership because a leader has a certain quality inside of them that makes them a good leader. They need that. And yet sometimes it's hard to cross that line and not get bossy in leading. And um, I know about that because when I was a little girl, my best friend told me she couldn't play with me anymore because her mom said I was too bossy. So (laughs) I've always been mindful of that. So Theodore Roosevelt said, people ask the difference between a leader and a boss. The leader leads, and the boss drives, and shepherds are to lead. They walk out in front of the sheep, and they lead the sheep and set the example to follow. They don't drive the sheep from behind. So what are we? Are we leaders, or are we bosses? Our ultimate example, of course, was Jesus, who set the example for us as a servant. He was a servant leader, and that's what we are to be, too. It's setting the example for someone else to follow, never feeling like anything is beneath me or I'm too good for anything, but being willing to do whatever it is we would ask somebody else to do and setting the example for them. So Peter instructs these men how to minister to the church, and then he gives them the true motivation for doing that. He says, if you're faithful to this, when the chief shepherd appears, Jesus, they will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And that crown refers to, it's the word Stephanos, it refers to that crown of leaves that would be placed on the head of an Olympic champion. And of course, that crown eventually would fade away, but this crown of glory will never fade away. It goes on throughout eternity. And I don't know about you, I've always been so curious about the crowns that are mentioned in the Bible, whether these are literal crowns or they're figurative. And I know our homework mentioned that they are not literal Um, But, you know, we don't know for sure. I mean, it would be fun. Wouldn't it be um, just such a blessing to have something tangible that we can lay down at the feet of Jesus? One commentary that I read said this. Frankly, we don't know too much about the promised crowns of Scripture. 
There's the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, and the crown of glory. We don't know whether they will be literal crowns that we can cast at the Savior's feet, whether they simply indicate the extent of responsibility that will be given to us during the reign of Christ, or whether they are facets of Christian character that which we will bear throughout eternity. But we do know that they will be ample recompense for any tears, trials, and sufferings that we have experienced down here. And I thought that was a great encouragement. And whatever it is, we know it's going to be glorious. And I'm so excited. Aren't you so excited for our pastors that they have that to look forward to? They put up with so much with us, don't they? They sacrifice so much for us. And how wonderful it is to know that they have a crown of glory waiting for them that will last throughout eternity. Warren Wearsby said, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who died for the sheep, the great shepherd who lives for the sheep, and the chief shepherd who comes for the sheep. And as the chief shepherd, he alone can assess a man's ministry and give him the proper reward. And one day, our shepherds will receive that crown of glory. So, verses 1 through 4 is the word to the shepherds, our, our pastors. They are to feed the sheep, tend the sheep, and protect the sheep, ministering with an attitude of humility, with a motive to please Jesus. Now, we move on. Peter has a word for the sheep. So, let's look at verse 5. Likewise, you younger people... Submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Well, up to this point in our letter, Peter has addressed that area of submission a few times. He addressed the saints to be submissive to their government authorities. He addressed the slaves to be submissive to their masters. And then in chapter 3, he addressed wives to be submissive to their own husbands. Now, he admonishes here the younger people to submit to their elders. And he could mean, that term younger people, it could mean those who are younger in age. But he also could be referring to the, the congregation, those who are younger in spiritual maturity, those who are under the leadership of their pastors. So either way, whatever he meant, he immediately included everyone in that exhortation. He said, you know what, all of you be submissive to one another. As we've already learned before, to submit means to be in subjection to somebody or to defer to another. I really like the way that Michelle described it as yielding to somebody else. And so here... Peter is instructing us to yield to the leadership of our elders. We know that God is a God of order, and he has established order in our government. He's established order in a home, and he has established it within the church body. And as members of a church body, our attitude should be one of respect and submission to our leaders and acknowledging that they are the ones to whom God has given the responsibility for the care of the sheep. And just like it is in any other area, that's for our own good. What happens when we don't follow that order that God has ordained for us? What happens when we step out of line? 
What happens when you have a congregation of, of people or people in the congregation who have their own agenda or have their own ideas uh, about how things should be done or who undermine the authority of the pastor? Typically, it starts within the heart of one person, but usually it doesn't stay there for very long, and they start sharing it with other people. And before you know it, you've got a body of believers who are not united, who are not of one mind and one spirit. And that's what's got, what God's desire is for the body, that we would be one, that we would be um, like-minded. And so when we get out of line and we step out from underneath that protective authority that God has ordained, it breaks that sense of unity within a, a body. And obviously, I'm not talking about here, if there is a pastor in a church who is teaching false doctrine, or if there's something unbiblical going on in a church that might need to be addressed, or the Lord might just remove you and place you in a church where you can submit yourself to the authority of the pastor. But I'm talking about here when people have their own agendas, when people have their own ideas about how things should be done, those things that really are surfacy and don't really matter. Now, when we think about it, what is it? Whether it's in the area of um, in the church, in the home, in government, what is it inside of us that makes it hard to submit to somebody else? What's at the root of that? It's our pride, yes. Pride. <laughs> and we all struggle with that, whether it's the younger people or the older people, all of us struggle with that. And so um, we want our own way. We want to do things our way because our way is the right way, right? We have the, we have the better idea. But, you know, have you ever stopped to consider what kind of fruit that yields when you are always insistent on your way or when you always want the focus on you? We think in our flesh that we will be happiest when we always get what we want or when the focus is on us or when things uh, revolve around us, our flesh thinks that's when we're going to be the happiest. But God's way isn't that way in, in every area. It seems to contradict, the spirit contradicts what our flesh thinks. The Bible says if we want to find life, we need to lose our life. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul exhorted us to follow the example of Jesus and esteem others better than self. It's the opposite of how we think in our flesh. But haven't you found that way to be true? Haven't you found that you're most fulfilled when you lay down your life for somebody else, when you lay down what you want to do or give up your time um, to serve somebody else? Really, we're most miserable when our focus is always on ourselves, because we can't get enough, right? And then we just want more and we want more. But that's when we're most miserable. Well, Paul gives us the cure for pride. He says to clothe yourself with humility. And really that means to go grab your apron and tie it around you and go out and serve somebody else. That's what that means. Clothe yourself with your apron like a servant, Stop thinking about yourself and start focusing on others. And we have a great reason to do that. Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that word resist is a strong word. It means to stand in opposi opposition against. And God opposes the proud because he hates the sin of pride. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19 these six things the Lord hates. 
Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Number one, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Pride is at the top of the list. And do we really want God to be opposed to us? Of course not. I I picture it like this. I picture that I am crying out to the Lord. I'm praying to him. I want him to hear me. And I picture that his it's as if his hand is, is out to me. He's opposed to me because my sin of pride has broken my fellowship with him. And I don't want that. I, I want to be one with him. I don't want anything between us. I want him to hear my prayers. And, but God says, I'm opposed to those who are proud. We don't want him to be opposed. We want his grace. We want his favor. Warren Wearsby said, the only antidote to pride is the grace of God, and we receive that grace when we yield ourselves to him, and the evidence of that grace is that we yield to one another. Now, our natural tendency, though, when we do that, when we take a step back and we lay down our pride and we lay down our desires or our ideas or what we think we need to do, is that then we worry. Well, if I don't take care of this, is this ever going to happen? What's going to happen if I don't do this? And it's hard, isn't it, to just let go of control? But the Bible tells us, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. Let him handle it. Peter said, take all those cares, all those things that you're worried and concerned about, and cast them on him. And that word cast means to Throw them upon him. It's not just saying here, just put it down. It's saying throw those things upon him. I was thinking, when I think of that word, I think about when I was a little girl and my dad would take us fishing. And I used to, my favorite part was casting the line out there. I used to love to just see how far I can throw it out there. And so I would cast that line out there, but then I would reel it back in because I wanted to do it again because it was so fun. But that's what I think about. Throw it as far as you can. Put it in his capable hands, but don't reel it back in. So many times we do that, don't we? Lord, I can't do this anymore. You take it from me. But then we worry. But oh, maybe if I just maybe if I just say this, or maybe if I just do this, this is going to settle the problem. But the Lord says, just give those things to me. And how do we know? How do we know that he can handle it? Because he cares for you. He loves you. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He will take care of it. But it is a matter of faith and trust for us to relinquish that and give it to him. Matthew 6.33, we sang this morning, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So what's concerning you today? It's as if the Lord is saying, if you would just worry about those things that concern him, he will worry about those things that concern us. Let's focus on his kingdom, and he'll take care of everything else that we spend so much time worrying about. A preacher once said, worry is sin because it denies the wisdom of God. It says that he doesn't know what he's doing. It denies the love of God. It says he doesn't care. And it denies the power of God. 
It says that he isn't able to deliver me from whatever is causing me to worry. But ladies, he's able. He can handle it. Give it to him. He knows our nature. Psalm 103 tells us he knows we're just dust. He wants to help us. Have you ever watched a little child trying to do something that they're not capable of doing? And doesn't it just make you want to like, just, would you just please let me do that for you? You know, I, I could do that so fast. Would you just let me take control and do that? And that's how I picture the Lord. Would you please just, I want to help you. Would you just give it to me? Let it go. Throw it, throw it upon me. He loves us. He knows we're weak. He's the one who calls us sheep. Have you ever um, studied sheep? I looked up a little bit this week, and it's so fascinating when you know that the Lord refers to us as sheep. It says, sheep are best known for their strong flocking and following instinct. They will run from what frightens them and band together in large groups for protection. This is the only protection they have from predators. There is safety in numbers. It's harder for a predator to pick a sheep out of a group than to go after a few strays. When one sheep moves, the rest will follow, even if it's not a good idea. The flocking and following instinct of sheep is so strong that it caused the death of 400 sheep in 2006 in eastern Turkey. The sheep plunged to their death after one of the sheep tried to cross a 15-meter deep ravine, and the rest of the flock followed. Sheep are a very social animal. In grazing situations, they need to see other sheep. In fact, ensuring that sheep always have a visual contact with other sheep will prevent excess stress when moving or handling them. A sheep will become highly agitated if it is separated from the rest of the flock. In addition to serving as a protection mechanism against predators, this flocking and following instinct enables humans to care for large numbers of sheep. It makes sheep easier to move and drive and enables a guardian dog to provide protection for a large flock. And when you read that, is it any wonder why the Bible tells us, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together? I mean, the Lord wants us to be one. He wants us to be together. He doesn't want us to be out on our own. We need each other, and we need our shepherds, right? So we had our word to our shepherds to tend to their flock, and now we had our word to the sheep first to submit to our shepherds or our pastors. And just so you know, I have a hard time talking about this because we have such a great pastor. So I'm not talking about our pastor, but in general, okay? But just so you know, that doesn't mean you're always going to agree with him. In fact, when you think about it, submission doesn't really come into play until there's a disagreement. So, and that's in any area where we're supposed to be submitted. Otherwise, we're just agreeing with somebody. So if we're always agreeing with somebody, we don't really have to submit to them. It's when there's a disagreement that you have to submit to their authority. So when we do this, we're saying, Lord, I trust you. You've placed this shepherd over this church. He's seeking you. You're going to deal with him. All I'm called to do is submit to that leadership. And I I thought about this, too. Remember, it wasn't a shepherd that led 400 sheep off a cliff. In fact, I looked it up. It, it, It was a true fact. 
And actually, 1,500 sheep went off the cliff, but only the first 400 um, died. But it wasn't the shepherd that led them in that direction. It was another sheep who thought, you know what, I'm going this way. And all the sheep followed him. And I just thought, you know what, our shepherds are wiser <laughs> than we are. They're, they're seeking to follow the Lord. So just a little note to be careful who we're following. <clears throat> Another exhortation to the sheep was to serve each other with humility. And then ultimately we are to trust our great shepherd, Jesus Christ, with those things that concern us, knowing that he cares for us. He loves you. He wants to take those things from you. He wants to ease your burden. And so let's let him do that. Now, God knows we need our shepherd. He knows we need other sheep because there is also a real live enemy around us seeking to destroy us, which is the roaring lion. So let's look at verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he, he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. All right, Peter says, be sober and vigilant. That means be ready, be prepared for the attack, be watchful. Don't be ignorant that there is an enemy out there who wants to destroy you. He wants to devour you. And who does he say is the adversary? He says it's the devil. Remember back when Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 6 that our adversary is not flesh and blood. It's principalities and powers. We might think our enemy is flesh and blood. We might think it's my husband or this person. And our issue might be with a person, but behind that issue, there is a spiritual battle going on. And it's incited by your enemy, the devil. The roaring lion. And we want to be mindful of that. We want to be watchful because we don't want to give him any ground. I can't tell you how many times, maybe you've done this too, my husband and I will be arguing about something that just escalates and escalates. And finally we just stop and say, you know what? This is an attack. Because this started with something really insignificant, you know? Why are we going in circles and circles over this? It's an attack from the enemy. He just knows how to get in, and we don't want to give him that ground. I, I hate it when I feel like, ugh, he just devoured an hour out of my day with that, or he just devoured a whole day out of my week because of that, and he wants to devour so much more, doesn't he? He wants our life. He wants our marriage. He wants our kids. He wants our testimony. He wants our witness. He wants our ministry. He wants our reputation. He wants to destroy our faith. He wants to devour our faith. He wants to take us out, and he's going to do whatever means necessary to do that. We don't want to be ignorant of that. Spurgeon said, He can never be content till he sees the believer utterly devoured. He would rend him in pieces and break his bones and utterly destroy him if he could. Do not, therefore, indulge the thought that the main purpose of Satan is to make you miserable. He is pleased with that, 
but that is not his ultimate end. Sometimes he may even make you happy, for he hath dainty poisons, sweet to the taste, which he administers to God's people. If he feels that our destruction can be more readily achieved by sweets than by bitters, he certainly would prefer that which would best affect his end. He's an enemy. He's out for us. We don't want to be ignorant of his devices. So how do we fight him? We're told here to resist him. We can band together just like the little sheep do for our protection. That's why it's so important for us not to wander off. Sometimes the tendency when we're going through a trial or we're suffering, we just isolate ourselves. We want to get alone. We don't want to be around other people. But who do you think the half-starved lion is going to go after first? Right? The stragglers, those who are not sober, those who are not vigilant, who are not paying attention, who are not in that security of the flock. So we huddle up and we allow the great shepherd to defend us. We resist him steadfast in the faith. So through the word of God, through prayer, we hold up that shield of faith that the enemy is shooting these fiery darts at us. We hold up that shield of faith and we resist. We don't discuss things with the enemy. We don't negotiate with the enemy. We resist the enemy and we allow the Lord to rebuke him. James 4.7 told us, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Our homework mentioned two mistakes that Christians make when talking about Satan. It says they either joke about him or they ignore him. And I think there's a third mistake that I would add to that. I think sometimes people make too much of him. We need to know he's powerful. We need to know his devices. I think that our homework was good in in all those verses that we went through. But I think sometimes people give him a little too much credit. Or there's an overemphasis on him and everything is about our enemy. Now, we don't want to be ignorant of him. We don't want him um, or his abilities or his powers. But also, we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that Satan is the equal opposite of God because he's not. It's not like there's good and bad and light and dark and God and Satan. He's not on that same level as the equal opposite of God. He's not. He's a created, finite being. He can only do what he's allowed to do. He can do a lot. We need to be careful. He does have power, but he's a created being who's limited in his abilities. God is greater and God is stronger. Look again at verse 8. It says, Because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion. He isn't the roaring lion. He's just like one. He intimidates us, right? He wants to put fear in us. Our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles, right? So who do you think is going to win the battle? Our God, right? So another mistake that we might make in our suffering is thinking that we're the only ones who are going through this. But Peter said, you can know that the same sufferings that you're experiencing are going on and your brothers and sisters all over the world. The enemy wants us to feel like we're the only ones who have this much trouble or we're the only ones that experience these things because he wants you to feel isolated. 
but we can know we're not alone in this. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Peter told us, you can know these same things that you're experiencing are experienced by others. We're not the only ones. And somehow, doesn't that bring you comfort? Somehow, when you are going through a trial, doesn't bring you comfort when you happen to run into somebody who's going through the same thing you're going through or they've gone through it before? I don't know. None of our lives go exactly how, how we have planned, right? <laughs> we, always, we all end up thinking, this is not how I thought things were going to happen in one way or another. It's like we all end up belonging to these clubs that we never intended to join, whether there's the widow's club or the cancer club or the prodigal mom club there's all these things that we never i didn't sign up for this i don't want to be a part of this right but doesn't it help you to know uh, that there's other women going through those same things that you're going through i know i'm so blessed the lord has brought a handful of women into my life who are going through the same trial that i'm going through right now and i'm so blessed to have them to pray with me Um, that we can encourage one another. I really love it when they come and tell me their praise reports and how God did this and God did that because that builds my faith and it encourages me and I know if he can do it for them, he'll do it for me. And so it's good to, to know we're not the only ones. It's good for us to not, or it's good for us to be transparent with others. I know sometimes it's hard for me to talk about what I'm going through with other people because they're, I don't know, we're we're afraid they're going to judge us or something. But when we can be transparent with others so that we can comfort others with the comfort God has given us. And it's a really good way to, to take our mind off of our problems when we focus on somebody else. When our focus is on, let me help you, this person's going through way more than I'm going through, let me help them, and then the focus comes off of me. So our hope in all of this, verse 10, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, Strengthen and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Those words there, after you have suffered a while. Did you have a hard time with those words? (laughs) I have a hard time coming to grips with that. After you've suffered for a while. One thing I always thought that was really interesting back when we started in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus told Peter, Peter, Satan has asked for you to sift you as wheat. Jesus didn't say, but don't worry, I'm not going to let it happen. He said, but I have prayed for you. He allowed him to go through it. God can stop things, but he allows us to go through it. He allows us to suffer. Remember back to chapter 1, Peter started his letter saying, in this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, 
though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's hard for us to understand it, but sometimes it's necessary for us to suffer. For one thing, how would we ever know that our faith was genuine, that it was real, if it was never put to the test? God does a work in us and through the suffering. It says, first, he perfects us. So he uses those trials to equip us, to make us fit for his use, and to make us complete and mature. It says he establishes us, which means to fix firmly. Trials make us more stable in our faith and able to bear up under pressure. It strengthens us. So Satan's desire is to take us down. He wants to make us weaker. And yet when we persevere, the opposite effect happens. It actually makes us stronger. And then he settles us. So he equips us to endure the storm. Things may be raging around us, but he gives us that solid foundation for us to stand on so that we are settled and not shaken. And isn't that just what little sheep need? Right? <clears throat> to be in that safety of the Good Shepherd. So let's finish up with Peter's final greetings here. <clears throat> His word of peace to the believers. By Sylvanus, our faithful brother. As I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you, to all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Peter refers to Sylvanus here. That's probably Silas. We're familiar with him from Paul's letters. And he wrote... um, He wrote to them, exhorting them that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Sometimes when we go through trials, it causes us to doubt our faith. And these believers especially, like I said, they were being persecuted. They were going through suffering for embracing Christianity. Do you think it might have made them wonder, did we do the right thing? Look where we ended up, you know? And that's how we go... uh, what we go through sometimes when we feel like we're following the Lord and yet we end up in a in not a good place. It makes us question, did I hear from you, Lord? Are you really real? I know, you know, I went through a trial four years ago that shook my faith. I've walked with Jesus since I was a little girl. But sometimes those trials can shake our faith. It makes us step back and go, wait a minute. <laughs> Do I really believe this? Do I really believe your word, God? Do I really believe you're there? Do I really believe you care for me? Do I really believe I'm going to heaven someday? But that's what trials have a tendency to do. It tests our faith. It proves it. And we need that sometimes because it's really easy to say it. It's another thing to really put it into practice and live it out, isn't it? And, and if that's the only reason why we go through trials, it's worth it because it, it increases our faith. It strengthens us. And Peter says, this is the true grace. You're right where you need to be. 
I liked how he told them to greet each other with a kiss of love. Paul refers to that as a holy kiss, and it's an outward demonstration of brotherly love. It was a tradition in the church for the believers to greet each other that way, and I like that because it's hard to be at odds with somebody that you are expected to greet that way in a warm, affectionate way, right? I mean, today we don't, we kind of have like the side hug thing and stuff, but today it's really easy to like, if I'm at odds with somebody, I'll just avoid them. But I like that it was an emphasis. Many times the believers were exhorted to greet each other that way. And I think it kind of forces a sense of unity and reconciliation within a body. Like I said, it's hard to be mad at somebody, you know, when you have that affectionate greeting with each other. Finally, Peter wished these believers peace. He said, peace to all who are in Christ Jesus. And really, that's the only place we ever will find peace, right? It's in Jesus, who is our Prince of Peace. So it doesn't mean things aren't difficult. It doesn't mean there won't be times where we will be unsettled or shaken. But we can go right back to him and put our trust in him, cast our cares on him, and entrust him with those things that concern us. Amen? Amen. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just want to say this morning, thank you. Thank you that you are the great shepherd who loves us, God, who cares for us, And Lord, we know most women in this room, if not every woman in this room, is going through something. And Lord, you know our frame. You know that we are prone to worry, to be anxious or uptight. But you are our loving Father who's looking over us and just asking us, give it to me. Because you can handle it. And so, Lord, I would pray now in Jesus' name that each one of us would be able to take those concerns that we have, God, and throw them upon you into your capable hands because you can accomplish those things that concern us. Lord, we are weak. We can't do it. We might think we have a strategy or we can manipulate things a certain way to get them to work out the way that we want them to. But, Lord, you are in control. And God, today we relinquish those things to you, Lord. And we thank you that you readily take them from us and that you give us your peace, Lord. I pray for the hearts of each one of these women that they would be settled. Minds focused on you, Jesus. A perspective of eternity, knowing that this world is not our home. Things are hard here, Lord. They're difficult. It's so hard not to let our hearts be burdened and grieved by the things that take on around uh, about us, take place around us, Lord. But we know that you are good and you have a good plan for us. And someday we're going to be with you and everything will be made right. And we look forward to that day. So, Lord, bless these ladies. Strengthen them today. Fill them with your joy and with your peace, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.